If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, as with last week, uh, the, the, the passages, the text for the sermon this morning is not printed in your bulletin, and that's going to be true for uh, the next couple of weeks, and that's because the passages, the text that we're going to be looking at are so uh, large that it would just take up lots of the bulletin to put them in there. Page 265 in the Blue Bibles, if you're using uh, those. And today, actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us both through 14 and 15, which is, as you will see, a lot of text and a lot of information. Our focus, so you know, is going to be on chapter 15. And what I'd like to do uh, before I read 15 for us is simply summarize chapter 14 for us, and then I'll go ahead and read that other chapter. So, way of reminder, we are squarely in the middle of a dark time uh, in the life of not only Israel, uh, but of King David in particular. We are being taken through what we've seen to be over the past couple of weeks, the wages of sin, the wages, the consequences of David's sin, particularly against Bathsheba and Uriah, which, as declared by God, would include devastation to come into his family. And that's what we're seeing unfold before us in these chapters. Now, last week what we saw was uh, David's son Absalom killing his half-brother Amnon because of Amnon's abuse of Tamar. And in fear of David's wrath, presumably, Absalom flees the scene for three years. Now, at the end of chapter 13, we read this last week, and I said I'd just commented on it uh, on this week, but we read this at the end of chapter 13, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, that's a tough thing to understand if uh, you're just looking at it in English. It is also tough to understand what's taking place here if you're looking at it in Hebrew as well, trying to understand exactly what is happening here. If you look at it, you might say, well, David is pining for a son who has essentially put himself into a kind of self-banishment mode. He's taken himself off of the scene, out of the picture, uh, and, and you could look at it as David pining for him. And perhaps there's some of that that is part of this. I, I think that the safest way for us to understand what is taking place here in David's own life is that he's conflicted, right? He, he's conflicted about this situation. And in one sense, on a very familial level, we get it. We understand why David would be conflicted here. One son has killed another son, even though the son who was killed deserved it. And in one sense, that son should have been punished by David himself. So David recognized that in one sense, my son did what I was supposed to do, killing my other son because of the crime that my son had committed. But nobody wants to inflict that then against their own son. So it's difficult. There's a difficulty here. And and I'm sure David feels another weight as well. I mentioned this last week. I think we can support it from other places around the text. There's probably guilt going on in David for his parenting, or lack thereof, uh, for the fact that he didn't manage his household well so that we ended up uh, in this place. And what David also recognizes is that ultimately, this all kind of roots back to him. 
He heard the curse that was spoken by Nathan. He knows that he's being punished for sins. He heard that the sword won't depart from your house as a result of his sin. Anyway, I think that's the safest way to understand here, that David is conflicted about the absence of Absalom and what he should do. Chapter 14 then takes us into the story of Absalom returning from this self-banishment and coming back into Jerusalem. The way it takes place is that Joab, who is David's commander, we remember him from earlier in 2 Samuel, Joab, for some reason, thinks that it would be a good idea to bring Absalom back into Jerusalem. Why? We don't know. Was it for the sake of David? Was it for the sake of the kingdom? Uh, we don't know exactly why it was. But in any case, he thinks that's a good idea and it would be perhaps restorative of normalcy in, uh, in Israel's life in some way. So he has a woman approach David with a story. And the woman gives the story to David of her sons who have had a fight and one of them killed the other and then goes into banishment. And it's designed uh, in many ways like the story of Nathan the prophet was. In other words, it's trying to elicit a response for David. It's trying to elicit a response of, well, that banished son of yours can now come back so that then it can be cross-applied, right? It can be applied to Absalom and Absalom himself can come back uh, as well. It's a crafty tale and you can take time and read it and see how the tale works out. But one gets the sense through it that there's duplicity involved here. Nathan was trying to tell a story for David's good. Here, there's a lot of duplicity that's going on in the story itself. And David sniffs it out. Okay, David kind of listens to this thing and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tell me everything I want to know. Did Joab put you up to this? You know, I, I, I sense the hand of Joab behind this. And so David figures out and the woman says, indeed, it was, it was Joab who told me to come to you and say all of this. Now, nevertheless, despite that, David says, okay, all right, Absalom can come back. But there's a catch to Absalom coming back. And let me just read this portion of it for us. Verse 24 of chapter 14, here's the kicker. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So there's a sense to which the exile has ended, the banishment has ended, but reconciliation hasn't really taken place. Uh, it, it's not a settled affair. So he's back in, but he's not quite back in. Now, I have to read the next two verses for us because they give us this interesting little snippet that's thrown into the story, um, kind of inserted here. And, and listen to this, verses 25 and 26. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's a lot of hair, uh, oiled or something, uh, to get a weight like that, one would think. So you kind of read this description. And, and let's be clear about something. The Bible isn't uh, just against anything or anyone that happens to be beautiful. But when you read this, it's kind of a, it's kind of a flag that goes up. And, and the flag that goes up is Saul. 
right? The, the, the flag that goes up is a similar description was made of Saul. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was great looking. He looked the part. And kind of when you read this, you go, uh-oh. All right, let, let, me, let me have second thoughts here about Absalom. In any case, that's inserted for us here. Absalom tires of the arrangement whereby he's able to be in Jerusalem, but he doesn't have any power. He doesn't have any position. And so he seeks out Joab. He tries to have a conference with Joab about the situation. And Joab, uh, as, as others have said, Joab won't return his calls. Okay, Joab will not get back to him, so Absalom burns Joab's field because, of course, that's what you do. It's your field that's next to him. Joab won't talk to me. I'll burn Joab's field. Joab comes and says, what did you burn my field for? And the answer is, because you wouldn't call me back. Because you wouldn't call me back. I'm in banishment, still in the midst of Jerusalem. This is an untenable situation. What can I do? Something is worked out then whereby Joab is able to take Absalom, bring him to the presence of King David, and Absalom bows down before David, and David kisses him. That's where the chapter ends. David kisses Absalom in the end of this. Uh, perhaps in that kiss, David is trying to extend a level of mercy. Perhaps that's what is taking place here. Uh, but beware. Beware of kisses. Beware of kisses. Kisses like beauty can go two ways. Kisses can be really good things. They can really show the right thing. Uh, and if Absalom returned the kiss of David, be very careful. Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him at the Mount of Olives, which is going to play significant in our story today. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Here's the reality. Absalom may honor the Lord with his lips, but his heart is far away from the Lord. All right, let me read 15 for us. I know it's long. It's, it's really a story, so it's not the kind of thing, you know, it's not Roman, so you're not looking at every part of this. Uh, so sit back, read along with me if you'd like to, or just listen to the rest of the story. The kiss is what closed us in 14. This is the word of God. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. Go in peace is ironic. There's no peace in Absalom's heart here at all. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet and say, Absalom is king at Hebron. 
With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, that is to say with Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us since I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to, get to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came up with the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they sat down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says... I have no pleasure in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But... David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, 
If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Lord, help us. Help us as we look at an ancient text full of intrigue, full of dishonesty, full of double dealing. Help us, Lord, to walk in this world well. Help us to hear from you. Speak to us from your word today, we ask in King Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier in this book, we rejoiced as David took the city of Jerusalem. It was there, it was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, O oh Jerusalem, that the Lord established the household of David, caused him to multiply there. It was there that the Lord established his kingdom, the kingdom of David in that place. And it was there in Jerusalem where the ark was brought into that place, into the city of God, the dwelling place of God. And there was worship and there was rejoicing and there was singing and there was dancing as the ark of God came into what then became the city of God, aka the city of David. And now one of his sons has stolen the hearts of the people and David is fleeing Jerusalem, weeping barefoot with his head covered. He is not the last king who will be betrayed in Jerusalem by those closest to him. He is not the last king who will be taken out of Jerusalem. He is not the last king that we will find weeping at the base of the Mount of Olives. His son, our Lord Jesus Christ, will experience these same sorrows, a very similar course to the course that David is taking here, only multiplied. And the apostles of our Lord Jesus taught us this. Through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. It's true for the Lord. It's true for kings. It's true for the people of God. We are to take up our cross. We are to, in the words that we read earlier, fight the good fight of faith. I'd like to organize our reflections, particularly on chapter 15 here today, under four headings, if you will, four categories. And the first is unfaithful family and friends. And then secondly, a faithful withdrawal. Third, faithful friends. And fourth, and finally, our faithful God. Okay, so let's start then where our text starts for us today with unfaithful family and friends. If you were tempted 
or if there was any benefit of the doubt that we wanted to extend to Absalom because of his desire to see David, his desire to be back in Jerusalem, of the fact that when he sees David, he does obeisance and he throws himself on the ground and then perhaps of this kick kiss. If there was any benefit of the doubt that we wouldn't wanted to give to him, it is immediately dispelled in chapter 15. However, of course, what is described in the early part of 15, the strategy, if you will, of Absalom, while it is made clear to us by the writer of this text, the writer of this text doesn't leave us in any more suspense about Absalom, it was not clear to David. Now, for whatever reason, it wasn't clear to David, maybe because it was his son, maybe because it was unimaginable to him that something like this would take place. But in any case, David is not aware that Absalom is a murderous, scheming, lying, power-hungry son who will do anything and everything to get into power, to take the position. And the strategy that he employs is political populism, to sow the seeds of discontent regarding his father and to curry favor and support as a man Right, as he describes himself, I'm, I'm a guy who understands. I'm a, I'm a man who could make your life better if only, if, if only. And it works, right? If only I was the judge. If I, if, if I was the judge in Israel, then everybody would have the justice that they clamor for. So yeah, this, is a, this is a present strategy political strategy, it's an ancient political strategy, and it's a present and an ancient political strategy because it works. It works. It sways the hearts of people when you tell them that thing because everybody's kind of desperate and hungry for those things, and so when you say it, people want to believe you, and they believe and fall for it. I, I can't help but make it kind of analogous to the words of Jesus. It is a, it is a false proclamation it is the antithesis, if you will, in intent, uh, but the words are similar to what Jesus says, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who are burdened. Come to me, those of you who haven't been able to get audience with the king. Come to me, those of you who have been unable to find justice in this world. Those of you who have been offended by others who are in power. Come to me, Absalom, and I will give you peace. I will provide justice for you. That's the strategy that he takes in all this. And, and here's a simple observation. Not all family members follow the ways of the Lord. Not all of them do. Some of them you can stay close with. Others you have to be careful with. But in addition to Absalom, there is another betrayal that takes place in this passage, and it comes right at the end of this opening section. It is the betrayal of Ahithophel. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong. We don't know a lot about this man, but from this very thing right here, what we do know is he was critical. He was David's advisor. He was a guy who gave good, sound, solid advice to David. He was trusted by David, and the weight of this defection, 
is seen clearly then in verse 31 as we go through, right? At this moment, David is not aware of Ahithophel's defection. In verse 31, and it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's a blow when David hears that. And it's a blow enough that he's going to instruct Hushai, the, the archite, to say, listen, I need somebody who is going to counteract the advice of Ahithophel who was speaking into Absalom's ear. Surely it is a combination of these two betrayals that David reflects on when he writes words that we recognize from the psalm. So this is Psalm 55. David is writing, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. I think Ahithophel is the one he's talking about there. We used to take sweet counsel together. We used to sit together. Or Psalm 41 says it this way. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And of course, you'll recall perhaps those are the words of Jesus. Those are the words of Jesus as they're into the Last Supper, as the foot washing has taken place. Those are the words of Jesus spoken of the one who was going to betray him. It is one that I've eaten with. It's a close friend. It's a brother who is betraying me in these things. The kingdom of God faces opposition. It faces opposition externally. Externally from Philistines and from Ammonites and from the culture at large and whatever things we also want to say about that. But inwardly, there is oft times opposition that takes place as well. The life of Jesus bears it out. It bears it out as well as the life of Paul. The life of Paul, which is why I had us read that passage from 2 Timothy earlier in the service, where Paul describes in the midst of this fight, and you could think, oh, the fight is against the Roman authorities, the fight's against unbelief, the fight's against the strongholds that are set up every thought we want to take captive. Yeah, but Paul, in writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, talks about the people who did him great harm. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me great harm. All of them deserted me at my first defense. They all deserted me, he says. They didn't stand by me. There are people who were close to Paul who then turned on him and turned on even also the message of the gospel. And I think we can all appreciate this, that the same arrow shot by an enemy hurts much worse when it is shot by a friend. When it's a friend who stabs us, then we feel it in an entirely different way. Be warned then, be warned then, it is possible to be inside, inside of Jerusalem, part of the council, and be unfaithful. It's a warning to us. So, as this unfaithful rebellion gains strength, what we see then next is a faithful withdrawal. Verse 14 says this, 
Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there would be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. I want to suggest to you that this is not a cowardly, faithless retreat. David is not a man who is easily scared from the fight. He's certainly not a man who is weak. Now, he's older. Uh, he's older than, his, than he used to be, obviously, because he's got sons who are old enough to uh, be adult men doing adult things with adult strength. But he is certainly not weak. But I think what we can see here is there are important factors that make, in this case, withdrawal the faithful choice. It's the faithful choice here. First of all, this is a conspiracy. It is a coup, and it snuck up on David. He didn't know about it. Whether he should have known about it, um, or, or whether that was legitimate that he didn't know about it, whether he should have known about it or not, he didn't. He didn't know about it. And as a result of that, he doesn't know who's with him and who's against him. It's a coup, right? It's, it's not Philistines and Ammonites who are out there. They're not all dressed in the same kind of armor of the enemy or wearing the same helmets of the enemy or under the flag of the enemy. They're under the same flag. Ahithophel is an example of this. He doesn't know at this point, at the very initial point here, he doesn't know that Ahithophel has turned against him and is actually part of the conspiracy. Thus, the departure is going to serve to identify those who are with him. Are you going to leave Jerusalem with me, not knowing where you're going, or whether or not we are going to be able to return from this? The departure is a sifting. It's a winnowing that is taking place. It's a refiner's fire that is taking place, but without bloodshed. And this seems to be part of the other motivation that David has. He's not ready because it's a coup. And he's also cautious. If possible, he doesn't want Israelites to raise swords against fellow Israelites. He has finally united the country. He has established Jerusalem. And he doesn't want to see all of that undone and the city destroyed in a pitched battle. Now, as this story is going to continue in the chapters that follow here, a battle is going to become necessary and inevitable in this conflict, but at least that battle won't take place in Jerusalem. At least Israel won't fight Israel in Jerusalem itself. And so the withdrawal at least says, maybe we can avoid this as a war, and at least we can avoid this, protect life, protect the city, protect the honor, the worship of God by taking it out of Jerusalem. So a faithful withdrawal reveals to us then faithful friends. There are events that take place in your life where you find out who your friends are, where you find out who your friends are. And there are three encounters that are given to us in this chapter of people who reveal their mettle. 
who show who they are inside as a result of the way that David has set up this entire withdrawal. There are two more encounters in the next chapter that are a little more questionable, uh, but three friends are in this chapter. The first is Ittai the Gittite. There's a good uh, Bible trivia question for you after you're not in this particular section. In a couple of months, you can throw that out of the party. Do you know your Bible's well enough to know who Ittai the Gittite was in this? I swear I would like to have preached the entirety of this sermon, and maybe I will at some point, on verses 18 through 23 that describe this man. David is bewildered by all of these foreigners who are leaving Jerusalem. You have the scene, right? So the scene is they come to the last house of the city. David stops there, probably with a couple of trusted people on either side of him, and they're watching the people who are passing out, who are, sorry, not passing out cold, but passing in front of him as they're going out of the city. And he's bewildered. He, he looks at these people who are passing by and goes, wait a minute, you guys just got here. You know, by the way, when it says yesterday, you, you just got here yesterday, that's just a euphemism. That's saying, listen, you're a recent arrival. You've just come into this place. You're refugees, you're exiles who have found, found finally a home in the city of God. What are you doing? And so he calls out to Ittai the Gittite. Ittai <clears throat> the Gittite is a leader. He is a warrior. He is the man who, with Joab and Joab's brother, is going to take a third of the army in the fight that is to come. This guy is no random guy who is there. Ittai the Gittite, a leader, a warrior. Ittai the Gittite. Gittite means from Gath. He's a Philistine. He's a Philistine from Gath where David played crazy where David had to flee back into the city for protection because there Saul wouldn't go to get him. Gath, got it? Goliath's hometown. He's from Gath. Ittai the Gittite. Ittai, what are you doing? Go back. Go back. I don't want to take you with me out into the wilderness again. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if I'm coming back. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, Lord Yahweh, as Yahweh lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. That, my friends, is a vow of fidelity accompanied by an act of fidelity, namely the act of accompaniment. I am with you, David, from the lips of a Philistine to the ears of Israel's anointed king. What might Jesus have said at that moment? Jesus might have turned and said, in all Israel, I've not seen this kind of faith. In all Israel, I've not seen this. This extraordinary faith that takes place here from this Philistine. By the way, whom does Ittai the Gittite sound like to you? Two answers. Peter. Peter. Oh, Lord, the rest of them will forsake you. I will never forsake you. Okay? So hold vows carefully. Hold vows carefully. 
But he sounds like Ruth, right? He sounds like Ruth. Ruth is the one that he sounds like here. Ruth's vow to Naomi. I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving your Lord. I'm not leaving your people. I'm not leaving your land. Where you go, I will go. And that's the vow that uh, Ittai uh, keeps in this situation that is before us here. So first, what we've got here is out of the mouth of Ruth, a Moabite, and out of the mouth of Ittai, a Philistine, faithful friends. But then there are Israelites as well, right? So Abiathar and Zadok come with the ark, which along with those kind of words, those kind of actions from, uh, from, uh, Gittai, from Ittai, sorry, these must have encouraged David's heart greatly because when, when they're coming out with the ark, when they come with the ark and they put it down right here and all the people are passing by the ark as they go out into the wilderness, it's kind of like a reverse Jordan, right? So the, the ark was there, all the people passed by the ark as they go into the promised land. This is kind of the reverse of that. Everybody's passing by the ark as they're going out of Jerusalem. But what they are doing is they're making a statement to say to David, David, it's not only Philistines that are with you. We're the Levites. This is the ark of God. God is with you. God is with you, David. You're heading out into the wilderness, but God is with you. David, of course, and we won't go into this right now, David refuses to use the ark as some kind of talisman, some kind of a, uh, a rabbit's foot, and he sends them back. He sends them back, says, no, 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 that's the city of God. He sends them back, likewise, to be his eyes and ears. And then finally, the, the third visitor that we have here, or the third one passing by, is Hushai, the archite, which is probably, that's a Canaanite tribe. Uh, theoretically, it could be an Israelite who then lay, lived in the place where that Canaanite tribe lived. I doubt it. I think he's a Canaanite. I think Hushai is a Canaanite. He's obviously a counselor, and in verse 37, he is called David's friend. David's friend, this Canaanite named Hushai, he too was sent back into the city as part of the uh, intelligence effort and the counterintelligence network that David is establishing. Unfaithful, family and friends, a faithful withdrawal, and then these faithful friends. We conclude then today with a faithful God. There is much weeping in this chapter. It is a dark time. Uh, son has arisen against his father, against the Lord's anointed. Many lives are at risk. David is leaving the city he loves. He's going back into the wilderness, and ultimately he's going back into the wilderness because of his own sin, because of his own hubris to say, as king, I can do what I want to do. It's a sad, dark time, and yet God is at work in the darkness. Because I think what we see here in David is an awakening or a reawakening or a deepening of his own repentance. God is providentially forcing him out of God's city of David's city, but he is not letting him go. He is forcing him out, but not letting him go. This is a purifying pain. David is relearning the lessons of submission 
and of trust to God, lessons he had to learn over and over, just like you and I have to learn them over and over. He's learning to trust God. Listen again to verses 25 and 26. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place, that is to say the ark and Jerusalem. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do what seems good to him. That's Job language. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil from the Lord? That's Habakkuk language. Though the trees be barren, though there be no fruit, though the olive harvest not come through, yet I will praise the Lord, the source of my salvation. If I can summarize what David is saying right here, David is saying, his will be done. Thy will be done. If I come back to this place, I come back to this place because the Lord has brought me back to this place. If I do not come back to this place, if I do not see the ark established in this place again, thy will be done. Lord, as you will. 1,000 years after these events, King Jesus will be nearly at this exact spot in Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives facing betrayal and banishment that he took upon himself, taking upon himself as the King of Kings the sin of David. The sin of David, taking the weight, the cost, the banishment, the betrayal, taking the sin of David, taking the sin of all of his people upon himself. And what did he pray? Lord, if there's another way, but not my will be done. Your will be done. In the darkness, God was at work. In the weeping, God was at work. When darkness fell across the face of the land at the death of our Lord, God was doing the greatest work that could be done for us, securing our redemption in that. The Son, the King, suffering the utter betrayal and banishment that belonged otherwise to us. We conclude today with a prayer of Psalm 3. I'm going to lead us in the prayer. I'm going to read Psalm 3 for us and ask you to pray along with me as I read it for us. Here's why we're reading it. Here's the title of Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. You want to know what was going on inside of his mind? You don't have to wonder. Here's the prayer. Pray with me then, quietly. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. 
I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Providentially, God is forcing David out, but he is not letting him go. Stand with me and pray it personal as we sing together hymn 708. Uh, 708. <laughs> 